Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things Primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Primal Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, and anti-aging supplement, available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, here's your host, L. Russ. Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast today. I'm really happy to have Dominique Kemp and Patricia Daly, who are the two authors of The Ketogenic Kitchen, a new book out, Low Carb, High Fat, Extraordinary Health, both cancer survivors, and here to talk about ketogenic lifestyle and how it relates to cancer and the healing that they experienced as well. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having us. Yeah, hi. Thanks again for having us. Well, first of all, the cookbook and the recipes look amazing, but you also kind of do a mini little tutorial on cancer and keto and glucose and all of the things surrounding that. And before we get into that, I'd love to just hear each of you are both, you both had cancer twice, correct? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Gosh, what a, what a, what a triumph it is to be here today. I'm so happy for you. Um, let's start with, uh, Dominique. Dominique, tell us just briefly a little bit about your cancer experience. Sure. Well, I had a malignant melanoma in my 20s, and that was chalked up to the fact that even though I live in Ireland now, I was actually born out in the Bahamas. Uh, and during the, the 70s, no one wore seatbelts or sunscreen, and you know everyone smoked. And, and I think it was one of those things where it was chalked up to the fact that I probably had you know Celtic skin and a very bad few burns as, as a child. So this malignant melanoma came up. I was treated for a year, didn't really think anything much more of it. I think when you're in your 20s, you tend to think that you're, you know, slightly invincible, nothing, you know, I didn't even really think that I had cancer, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. And then in my 30s, I remember reading this really wonderful book by Dr. Servan Schreiber called Anti-Cancer. And it always stuck with me and I was terribly interested in it. Um, I'm a chef and uh, I've always been really interested in nutrition. Uh, And this book was wonderful. It sort of looked at all the different uh, foods and superfoods and also looked at different tribes and different nationalities and sort of studying each diet and the sort of pro and cons of, of each. Uh, and it always stuck with me. And uh, so when I was 41, then I was diagnosed with breast cancer. So that was back in 2013. And I found a lump and, you know, w- led to treatment straight away, had chemotherapy and then a mastectomy and radiotherapy. And I remember being in the hospital and there's a ton of leaflets sort of advising healthy eating. And it's the same old food pyramid nonsense, uh, sort of, you know, eat little and often, you know, eat a healthy, balanced diet all these trite expressions that uh, I remember it really is. And you kind of go, really, is this it? And I remember asking, uh, you know, and you're desperate for information. And I asked my oncologist and, and he said, you know, just stay lean. A lot of people tend to think that they'll, they'll lose a lot of weight with chemo and that isn't always the case. So stay lean. And I said, anything else? And it was basically sort of don't interrupt treatment. We don't really mind what you do, but don't do anything to interrupt treatment. And I just thought, right. So of course you go home to Dr. Google and you, you, you look up everything you can possibly find. And, you know, then you start realizing actually there's a lot of really crazy advice out there. Um, and it was trying to navigate my way through that. Um, And 
once I finished chemo, friends, mutual friends of both Patricia and I, it sort of kept badgering me to go and see Patricia, who's a nutritional therapist, which I was kind of reluctant to do because I thought I'm so fed up with people telling me what I should do. And I'm, I'm really, you know, really interested in all the papers I'm reading and so on. I, I don't want people to start telling me to, you know, do some really crazy stuff. But I went and I met Patricia and it was just, it was mind blowing. It was so... I suppose it gave me so much confidence that what I was doing was was right. And because everywhere you looked, you know, you keep reading sugar feeds cancer, sugar feeds cancer. And even though that's an oversimplification, you're still looking at the food pyramid that's recommended with its five or six portions of very processed carbohydrates. And you're going, surely we should be recommending something smarter to cancer patients. So that's my story. I finished treatment. I did low carb through throughout. Um, I never went fully ketogenic and it just really suited me. Uh, and, and I think, you know, once, once we finished and, and treatment, it was sort of like, we have to write a book that we both wish we had when we were first diagnosed and that's where we are. Yeah. And I, I understand that. I also was looking for a book, uh, to buy and I couldn't find it. So then I had to write it. Um, <laughs> that's how it works. So Patricia, tell us about your, um, and you know, we'll get into more details here, but just give us a brief synopsis too of your, your cancer journey up until, you know, discovering keto. Mm, yeah, of course. So I was diagnosed in 2008. And again, like Dominique, I was in my 20s. I was 28 at the time. And uh, it, it was a very rare form of eye cancer, a choroidal melanoma. So it's a tumor that sits in the eyeball, which is very unusual. And uh, it's it's sort of scary to have that. I almost felt a bit at the beginning, like having a parasite in my sitting in my eye or my brain. And uh, the good thing, though, about it is that you can actually watch the tumor and you can watch the environment and you can see what works and what doesn't, which I learned then down the road. So anyway, I went for conventional treatments. Uh, there was nothing available in Ireland at the time because it's so rare. So I went for plaque radiotherapy in Liverpool in the UK. So that means you get you have a general anesthetic, you get a, a radioactive plaque stitched to the back of the eye and then they leave it in for about four days and then they take it out again. And then I was sent home. And for me, it was very clear that I wanted to do something uh, for myself as well. I wanted to take some control. And I'm from Switzerland, where complementary and alternative therapy is enshrined in the constitution. So I grew up with it. For me, it was just natural to actually go mm -hmm. and see what I could do. And what I started doing then was uh, studying nutritional therapy. A month after finishing treatment, I was still very tired and really battered. I mean, I looked like a boxer after a lost match after my treatment. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, so I went ahead and started studying, but very quickly had a relapse, not even two years afterwards, when my first baby was six months old, I uh, was diagnosed with a relapse. Then uh, treatment again, this time it was much more aggressive. It was proton beam therapy, the strongest possible dose that they could use at the time, because my oncologist said it was, he hadn't, he had rarely seen such an aggressively growing tumour. So I did that and the tumour had moved so close to the optic nerve that they had to radiate the optic nerve as well, which they said then would lead to complete loss of vision within about 12 to 18 months in that eye. It was my right eye. And that's what was pretty much happening. And in 2012, 
I had a lot of issues. I had edema in my eye. I had cataracts. I had excess angiogenesis, so lots of blood vessels growing, therefore increasing the pressure. So it was just, you know, almost anything and everything you can find in an eye was happening uh, in my eye at the same time. And that's when I said, okay, instead of going for Avastin injections, which was the suggestion uh, from my consultant, I said, look, can I have a few weeks I have researched and read about this um, ketogenic diet for a long, long time. And he had been reluctant previously. I had always been on about, can I take supplements? Can I do this? Can I do that? And he always said, look, just don't do anything extreme. Mm. You know, wait and see. You know, maybe we, you know, radiotherapy will work. Uh, but then it was, it was two years down the line and he said, okay, go ahead. I monitor you. And that's what I did. And when I went back then, it was a few weeks later, I think it was the five, he wanted to see me very, very regularly at the time, about five weeks. And uh, he looked in the eye and he said, it's, it's like the calm after a big storm. And that's what I said at the beginning. You can really, that's the nice thing about my tumour. You can really see. <laughs> you can say happening. nice things about tumours. Yeah. <laughs> it is obviously a horrible experience going through cancer, but I look at it from a um, different perspective, from a research perspective now as well, obviously not just from a cancer patient's perspective. And it was very interesting to see. And when I look at the photographs as well, how the optic nerve was pretty much dead and my vision was pretty much gone and how the optic nerve is alive again and I mean that's four years now and uh, I still have my more or less full vision uh, there's a little bit of retinopathy going on from the treatments but otherwise everything is is really great with the eye which is fantastic Excellent. So this is such a great, it's not necessarily new, as you point out in your book with some research done back in the day, you know, people were on to this for a while, but without getting too sciencey for those out there, just kind of wanting to understand how a keto, which is low carb and also extremely low glucose, how that relates to cancer, because we, we, we hear, like you said earlier, you know, sugar feeds cancer. Sometimes we hear that when they're looking for cancer in someone's body, they even inject the blood with glucose in order to find it because the cancer cells light up. So there's obviously this connection there. And, you know, you talk about um, how glucose is, you know, a prime sort of fermentable fuel for cancer cells. And so, you know, the regulation of those things can be effective for cancer management. Can you give everyone a little gloss over of how the sugar or elevated sugar in the body can ignite, you know, and get a cancer cell going in the wrong direction? Yeah, of course. I mean, basically, it's probably good to start with what the ketogenic diet aims to do. So it basically mimics fasting. And that's also how the ketogenic diet was discussed discovered, if you will. So it was discovered that uh, epileptic patients back in the, it was in the early 1920s or um, around then, when they were sick and they had to fast, that their seizures reduced, basically. So they very quickly realized, oh, wow, this, uh, you know, fasting is brilliant for epileptic patients. How can we mimic this with a diet? Because we can't just fast them uh, for a prolonged period of uh, time. And that's how they basically came up with the ketogenic diet. And the goal of a ketogenic diet, which obviously, as we see in epileptic patients, has really big neurological impacts, so impacts on brain biochemistry. So it basically mimics fasting and it trains your body to burn fat instead of glucose. And that's the, the really the main goal. And that's what I think people have to understand that if uh, anybody who follows the food pyramid 
and eat their five to six portions of whole grains and quite a lot of fruit and starchy vegetables and also vegetables that they may be topped up with some uh, you know, soda drinks and uh, chocolates that they are predominantly burning glucose. And that's what we want to uh, stop basically with the ketogenic diet. And it's training the healthy cells to, to burn fatty acids and ketones. And what we have or what, what the research shows is that cancer cells have an incredibly hard time burning fatty acids or ketones. So they really prefer glucose, most of them. And again, that's ongoing research to find out which tumours respond best. At the moment, we have a lot of research into brain tumours and also some good evidence, preliminary evidence into melanomas. And yeah, just to really see which types of cancer respond best and which ones are very glucose um, dependent. There's also some cancers that use more glutamine as well or a mix of the, the two. So glutamine is an amino acid. And that's what we're trying to target with a uh, ketogenic diet as well. You obviously can't cut out glutamine. Um, It's a non-essential amino acid, so the body can make it itself. But researchers are trying to find ways of stopping those pathways as well or stopping cells, cancer cells from using glutamine. Right. And on that note, you you mentioned, and we'll get into diet stuff later, but you do mention that for people dealing with cancer, you know, some excess or whey protein with the glutamine might not be the best option. And that's something to look at as well. Yeah, there's IGF, um, IGF-1 and all the insulin pathways. So there's um, some people think, oh, it's only carbohydrate rich foods that actually elicit an insulin response. But there's also certain uh, protein rich foods or especially excess protein um, that can then turn be turned into glucose or it can in itself be, be used then or if it's obviously increases insulin, that's not great for a a cancer patient. So we want insulin at a low and steady level and also insulin-like growth factor one. And that's one of the major effects. So if, as Dominique said at the beginning, if we say sugar feeds cancer, that's really, really very simple. I mean, the ketogenic diet goes so much further. I mean, I think it's a lot about insulin and it's a lot about ketone bodies. Glucose might come into play, but the more we learn from research uh, done by Adrian Scheck, but also Dominic D'Agostino and um, Tom Seafried, Colin Champ, all those great people, um, the more we see that maybe it's just the ketone bodies themselves, irrespective of glucose levels, that have a serious anti-cancer effect. And that's what we really have to find out with well-designed studies now. And then there's an, there's all the other pathways, you know, there's angiogenesis, as was seen in, in, in my example. I think it's a prime example of how the ketogenic diet can affect angiogenesis. And angiogenesis is the, um, the growth of blood vessels that feed a tumour. So as soon as a tumour has a certain size, it sends out... Um, for instance, VHF, vascular endothelial growth factors to the nearby blood vessels because it needs nutrients and it needs um, it needs to grow. So that's how they they grow. And there's always angiogenesis involved. And that's how tumours can metastasize, so how they can spread as well. And obviously, you know, reducing angiogenesis is uh, is a huge benefit for a cancer patient. But we also know epigenetics can be affected. And, you know, there's so many 
other uh, things, you know, that, you know, glucose can be used by uh, cancer cells also to fix free radical damage from treatment. So the more tr- more glucose a cancer patient has, the more likelihood he will become resistant or treatment won't be as effective. And I think that's very interesting as mm-hmm. well. No, it's fascinating. And also, I'd love you to touch on, and again, you know, uh, to get into a really in-depth scientific discussion on mitochondrial you know, dysfunction is maybe a little bit too in depth here, but can you talk about this? You know, a lot of people think, and the definition, if you look online, right, is that cancer is a genetic versus a mitochondrial disease. And, you know, it's, it's very interesting because, you know, when you're talking about, you know, sort of almost this, an increased appetite for glucose can result from the fact that most of these malignant cells have deficient or defective mitochondria, right? So in essence, I, I look at that as they're trying to fight a way to feed themselves or get the energy going, right? And so if glucose is present, they might use that and then that's problematic. That's the way I interpret it. But can you sort of touch on that and give a layperson's, um, you know, little synopsis on that? Yeah, basically, as you said, uh, you know, a lot of cancer cells, they have damaged or deficient uh, mitochondria or sometimes they, they don't have mitochondria. I mean, cancer cells can be so... Um, unlike healthy cells they're really completely some of them are so completely uh, different in terms of structure even and uh, function so what they do then uh, because in in a healthy cell the, the bulk of the ATP so that the energy generated is through the mitochondria basically so it's it's through you know oxidative phosphorylation when oxygen is present and then it goes into the electron transfer chain and then you you have you know the bulk of the ATP that is uh, produced in a healthy cell uh, when there is oxygen present and when in a cancer cell basically the cancer cell behaves a little bit like uh, a healthy cell when there's no oxygen uh, but that's what's called the Warburg effect that cancer cells they they actually use uh, glycolysis so that's something that happens outside the mitochondria so that's splitting of glucose and that's what they do um, in a very efficient and manic way almost because they are simply not using most of them they're not using the mitochondria so they do this they use this glycolysis whether there's oxygen present or not so obviously because um they don't use the mitochondria, they generate a lot less energy. So it's about, you know, 36 ATP in a healthy cell with the use of mitochondria, as opposed to about two net ATP um, through glycolysis. So as you can see, you need to, uh, for a cancer cell to grow, which which they usually do, <laughs> they grow quite fast and they divide and um, replicate, they need to get a lot of glucose in. So they have more glucose receptors most of them uh, they also have more insulin receptors so they're very well adapted to this glucose gobbling environment basically and that's why PET scans basically work as well that's the rationale behind PET scans as you said earlier uh, what happens is that uh, a patient is fasted and then they they inject radioactive glucose and they see then on the scan okay which cells um, are metabolically a lot more active when it comes to glucose, coupling up glucose, basically. Right. So you want to sort of take away, essentially, you know, their ability to get more active and and kind of want to stop them in their tracks if possible. And that's the whole sort of point here. 
Yeah, you just make their life a little bit and for some cancers, that's a lot harder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're making my life tough. Watch what I'm going to do to you with some keto, ketogenic <laughs> yeah. diet coming at you. Yeah. <laughs> and then it goes the whole mitochondrial story or whatever you want to call it, the whole research that especially Tom Seafried really focuses on that. And for anybody who is interested, there's, you know, really fabulous papers out there written by him. And he did you know, the nuclear transfer uh, experiments and you know for anybody who is more interested just to take it even a st- step further where he showed that you know if the mitochondria are healthy and well functioning and you actually transfer a cancerous nucleus so with DNA damage into a, a healthy cytoplasm with healthy mitochondria that when the cell replicates that the cell still stays functional and it doesn't become wholly cancerous whereas I mean, it's it's a bit abstract when I talk to you about it. It's easier if I have pictures, <laughs> but it's absolutely fascinating how mitochondria seem to be able to keep cancer or, you know, a, a nucleus, a cancerous nucleus in check, which, which I think it's absolutely mind-blowing research that definitely needs to be followed up on. And whereas, you know, if the mitochondria are cancerous, the nucleus becomes cancerous very quickly as well. And that's the whole genetic versus, you know, metabolic uh, disease, which we explain in the book as well. So all those nice pictures. Yeah, the gonna say, they're in the book. <laughs> <laughs> they are. Yeah, no, they're great. So for anybody who is interested in the really sort of the nitty gritty and uh, it's it's fascinating. And I, I do hope they will build really well designed studies around that as well. Well, it's interesting because this is also related to thyroid in the sense that when you are hypothyroid and you have low thyroid, you are, you're not creating enough energy, uh, you know, in the body. And so that affects mitochondrial and then that becomes dysfunctional. And then, of course, since you don't have energy from the thyroid, then you now are craving glucose because your adrenals are trying to get you up and out of bed and you're craving sugar. And then next thing you know, you're insulin resistant. And, you know, the reason that undiagnosed hypothyroidism over time does lead to cancers and other issues. And that's, I'm sure absolutely related exactly to what we're talking about with these cells and when they become dysfunction or energy or or in the opposite direction when too much energy is created, right? And it's kind of a a Goldilocks situation there. Um, One of the things I love about this and in general at the Primal Blueprint, I mean, everyone who's listening probably has heard enough or or read enough maybe about, you know, why it's important to run primarily on on fat and not not glucose. You know, our, our DNA is humans, just we are, that's how we're programmed and it's eating in line with, you know, what our genes and, and, and cells have come to expect. And when we go outside of that, right, we have problems and cancers and other issues. So I am a huge fan. I myself am extremely low carb and ketogenic most of the time because I developed insulin resistance in a hypothyroid state. And I will never go back just because at the very minimum, aside from what it does for your body and health, it brought down inflammation significantly, right? So it's very anti-inflammatory. And as we know, right, inflammation is at the root of all of this stuff to some degree. And uh, not only that, but just the brain and energy and appetite. And, you know, I know you know what that feels like. And it's a whole different level um, of, of brain function, in my opinion. Um, so, so I'm a huge fan myself. And I love your cookbook. And I want to definitely get into that. I want to talk a little bit about you know, it's, it's, uh, it's tough for people who haven't gone keto or low carb to get into it. And I like the fact that you suggest not jumping in. And I know people will get excited or they might be, you know, wanting to try this and working with their doctor. And 
I agree that it's too harsh to go right from eating a standard American yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know how horrible that would be. It's really tough. But if you do it gradually, it's really not painful. You can ward off the keto flu. But there's a transition there. And you talk about, you know, giving up too early. And a lot of people give up too early on on all this stuff, even when they're just transitioning to a primal paleo diet. And even though it's not extremely low carb at first, still there can be a bad couple of weeks there and your brain's struggling because it wants the glucose and people give up because they think, oh, this is not right. This is making me sicker than I already feel. And so can you touch on that transition and and what that was like for you guys? Yeah, well, I think, you know, transitioning, uh, both Patricia and I, and, and, you know, Patricia used to be a triathlete. I used to be involved in horses and was show jumping. And and like, so we, we both, we have a load of similarities before we met. We both were sporty. We both had cancer twice. And guess what? We both followed very high carb, really low fat diets for, for probably the, you know, 90, 95% of our life. Um, and I think that, that part of it was really interesting. It's like, we were so conditioned to view fat as as the enemy, you know, all throughout our lives. Um, and, you know, so sort of bread for, for, for breakfast and then, a, you know, a carbohydrate-based lunch and then pasta for dinner, but with, with you know, very little meat and no fat, you know, and that was the whole thing. Meat was sort of an enemy and fat was definitely an enemy. Um, and I think that once you understand what low carb is and it's trying to find those replacements, and I know, as a chef, you know, I love carbohydrates. Carbohydrates are delicious, you know, <laughs> really. They're, they can be fantastic, <laughs> especially smothered in, in protein and fat. Delicious, heaven. Um, but it doesn't, and it touches on what you said. I feel much better when I, I'm just low carb all the time. I just, I feel rubbish uh, when I eat carbohydrates. They just don't suit me. I'm hungry all the time. I'm grumpy. I find it difficult. But the one thing I think as a cook and somebody who loves all food, I think the hardest thing when you do low, go low carb are those replacements. So it's things like you, you miss the vessels for things like cheese or butter, you know, so it's like you, you desperate for things like crackers and bread and toast. So if you can find those replacements and we have a, we have a good selection of them in the book. And if you can make the effort to make them, I just find it kind of, it, it helps, it, it helps those danger periods. And, you know, I, I eat dark chocolate, but I eat 85% dark chocolate because it's very hard to eat more than, you know, a couple of squares. Whereas if you have a milk chocolate bar, I mean, you just eat the whole bar. <laughs> totally. And you can't control it. Same if you open up a pack of, of, of uh, crisps or um, potato chips, as you would call them, anything like that. They, I mean, they are so heavily you know, designed to make you literally not stop. So you ha- you kind of haven't a chance, so you haven't a hope. So I think it's so important if you do want to go low carb is to know where your danger spots are. And for me, it is things like, um, you know, crackers and sometimes, uh, you know, sweet things. So the dark chocolate, it's fine. Square two, that kills my sugar craving and I'm done. But also the the cracking crackers in the book, they are just wonderful to have. And when you're kind of a bit, mm, you know, I'd love love a piece of sourdough toast now, some cheese. Um, you can have those instead and they're really low carb and really satisfying. And yeah, I think it's also, as somebody said, you know, having having those replacements initially and we call them crutches. Mm. 
And we were debating for a long time whether we put desserts in. And initially I was like, no, this is so not going to be desserts in this book because I don't want to actually encourage people because people probably buy the book and all they do is the desserts. You know, that's a very good point because that is such a classic kind of pitfall too with a lot of these great paleo treats, you know what I mean? Yeah. Encouraging people to have tons and tons of sugar, you know, through dates or whatever. And and we did struggle with it. Yeah. So I, I talked to some of my clients as well and I said, look, would you be devastated if there were absolutely no dessert recipes? And they said, look, they actually sometimes make or break me. So it, they, it's, it's really for people who sometimes they just fall off the wagon. I prefer that they fall off the wagon with one of the desserts in our book than <laughs> go to the nearest bakery and buy a massive uh, cake and just stuff their faces. So that's what we really would like people to understand. That's what they're there for. And also, you know, things like I remember when I began, I tried to replicate everything. I tried to make low-carb breads. I tried to make low-carb pizzas and low-carb lasagna and low-carb everything that I used to love. And I think that's fine at the beginning. Um, but I've very much moved away from this because it can be quite time-consuming to constantly try and replicate. Recreate the past. <laughs> recreate the past, yeah. It's just, okay, let's move on. And sometimes, honestly, it's just really simple stuff. I mean, I eat loads of vegetables and uh, I have my, I, I eat lots of you know, oily fish, good quality oily fish, which is you know quite easy to, to get here in Ireland. And uh, I eat lots of organ meat and and then I top it up with, with good fats if I have to, because I, I eat avocados. I try to have most of my fats from whole foods as much as I can. And, you know, it's, I've really, really simplified and probably also because I am a lot busier than I was four years ago when I started. And I think that's the other point. Make sure you have time when you do the transition and you're not stressed out and finding, you know, starting a new job or moving house at the same time. (laughs) Not a good idea. And also with regards to exercise, uh, people who do the transition, they might, as you say, feel a little bit more um, lethargic and also their brain suffers a little bit, a bit of glucose deprivation, uh, just making sure that people stay really, really well hydrated throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was Dr. Bernstein recently who is a type 1 diabetic and who's been keto for almost all his life, actually. And he said, yeah, you know, most people who do low carb are actually chronically dehydrated. I think this is very important to address as well, plus adding salt. Thank you for mentioning that. That's like the key to the super low carb keto is that you usually need more salt than others. And of course, we're talking about the good quality Celtic or Himalayan or or Hawaiian sea salt. But um, yeah, that's important because I've noticed that too. And your body can tolerate a lot more of it as well. And you actually need it. Um, so like lots of, you know, maybe more, maybe bone broth with salt and you know things like that that you might have to just pay attention to that when you're low carb yeah Mm -hmm. and it's it's making sure food is really well seasoned you know and that's the thing and again like fat we've all been so terrified of salt but it's the salt that's in hidden processed food i mean that's really the the salt that people have no idea you know when they eat biscuits or cookies or anything because there's salt in everything even sweet things you know it sort of enhances it's all the iodized salt that's stripped of everything anyway which actually contributes to like high blood pressure and people always think 
oh, well, if I eat salt, I'll get bloated. And not if you're doing this, the right kind of salt. You don't get bloated. You don't retain water. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like, you know, cooking some broccoli and, and tossing it with a little butter and seasoning it well, it makes it just so delicious. Whereas, you know, you could get a frozen dinner and it's probably got three times the amount of salt and tastes quite bland and it's doing you no good nutritionally. So it's sort of, you know, you you have to, to weigh it up. And I think it's just getting people to, to know that when they cook, they can be generous with the salt when they're not eating processed food. I want to mention to everyone that your book is sort of broken down where uh, Dominique's recipes are sort of a moderate carb restriction. And then Patricia, Patricia's recipes are about ketogenic, which is really 4% carbs and, you know, often over 70% fat. So you have a kind of, you have kind of a little combination in there, right? So there's a way to sort of do a little transition phase with your cookbook. And then if you needed to go further, you, you know, so you kind of offer both. Definitely. Yeah. The idea was to start, if you're coming at this fresh and new, it's to start with the low carb section and then, you know, see how you feel, see how you get on, because there's already a huge amount of benefits that you can get just by going low carb um, and it's really then to just keep reading there's a good section in the middle about the whole transitioning and it's it's laid out very clearly and I mean the other part is I suppose some of the recipes uh, some of the low carb recipes some of them are, are, are decently low carb and then some of them are a little bit higher um, but it's I think you know there are some recipes that can do for both and you know once people get their head around when they see the, the percentages and the grams of, of which every recipe has is the complete breakdown of the macronutrients I think people then can get a bit more confident you know and start saying oh well, actually I'm going to have that chicken dish from Patricia's section and I might eat that that salad over there and you know it's it's about finding what I think suits and, and works for people because um you know as we, we we all keep hearing and saying you know and even people who who disagree with different diets they'll say oh there's no perfect diet for everyone and then yet you're going well why have you all recommended the food pyramid for the last 40 years <laughs> well I mean and you know uh the, the food pyramid is just like it's it's basically like would you like an inflammatory disease eat this way <laughs> you want diabetes here you go here's the poster i mean it's like no i mean all of the ads in our country on television are all for type 2 diabetes now and it is just such a sad thing literally right standard american diet um yeah 6 to 11 servings of grain plus 2 to 4 servings of fruit we're looking at a really high carb serious huge amount huge problem. amount and and yeah. it's it's been very frustrating i think there's there's such there is such resistance, and I, you know, even if if you're uh, you're an oncologist or you're a dietitian, and you're you're sort of uh, you know you're not familiar maybe with the ketogenic diet. I mean, I just don't understand why they're not saying to cancer patients who aren't, say, at risk of, of losing loads of weight, where there's a you know different set of problems. But people like myself who have breast cancer and so on. I don't understand why there isn't more emphasis on just saying, listen, cut out, cut out the carbs, go low carb. You know, it's a really straightforward, simple, easy thing to do that and also encouraging exercise. And I think people are just scared. There's a bit of a, a status quo effect. And, you know, let's just continue to do the same old, same old and hand out the stupid leaflets telling you to eat basically what your your cancer cells love. Right. Keep coming back for more chemotherapy, please. Here's a pamphlet. Yeah, exactly. It's just really frustrating. And I think that's why then people, when they go to the internet and they go home and like I did, and they think there must be something better. It is why they resort to some really crazy stuff or they say, you know what, I'm giving up treatment altogether. And I think we've been really clear in the book saying, listen, conventional treatment, you know, definitely we're both here because of it and so on. But can't we be, say, trying to improve 
outcomes by actually doing something that's going to complement treatment or keep you in better shape or help reduce side effects. And I think that's what the focus uh, should be on because certainly neither of us were saying, you know, go plant a tree and, you know, rub some snake oil on yourself and that will cure your tumor. Right. You mean that doesn't work? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to patent that for next year. That's next year's book. (laughs) Right. Well, then also we're talking about like, let's, let's try to do, give our body the best environment to prevent a potential recurrence. Like let's not mess like, or let's not F with these, you know, cancer cells, right? Like, you know, like let's not taunt them. You know what I mean? That's kind of the way I would look at it with following keto and low carb beyond, you know, once you're in remission even, right? Isn't that sort of how you guys are thinking about it? Otherwise you'd be right back to eating carbs. Definitely. It's sort of, you know, and I I think for me, I definitely felt so good eating this way. And, you know, and and people used to be vaguely shocked when they'd see me coming out of surgery, sort of looking at me going, what were you doing? (laughs) You look far too healthy and perky having just come out of, you know, a mastectomy. And I'd be like, you know, bounding down the hole, just going, I'm getting out of here. I'm getting out of here. That's Um, and it was I just you know I would I would jog up to radiotherapy I would jog it was anything I can do and I just was so like nearly fanatical in terms of getting to the end of it and just saying I need to keep moving I need to keep eating right and I need to stay really positive and I, I just it really worked for me and it's as you said why would I want to go back to what I was beforehand. It's, you know, I've had cancer twice. I, you know, you have to join the dot somewhere and not saying I won't get something again in a few years. But at the same time, you know, why, why give their cancer cells any opportunity? Why not just make it as hard as possible? And certainly I think um, living this way and feeling as good as I do, I think that that definitely counts for something. Well, right. And you can also look back and say, well, even though you might like connecting the dots, while you might definitively not be able to say, well, I ate this way for all these years, and therefore it gave me cancer or ignited the cancer. But what we do know is that those two things were happening at the same time. So you know what I mean, right? So whether it fostered it or not, or whether it was going to happen anyway, the bottom line is, is that, you know, you're, you're probably better off and your percentages are going to be way lower recurrence. Yeah, without a doubt. And I mean, it would have been in some ways, you know, the master experiment, it would have been great if I could just literally have split myself in two and, you know, <laughs> followed followed this one diet and then with the other. And of course, you know, isn't this the problem with all the, the randomized controlled trials when it comes to diets is you, you can't. You can't do that, you know, and it, it sort of it, it just would have been so interesting to see actually what the effects would have been, because inadvertently, I also did a lot of fasting. Um, and I really mean inadvertently, I just felt so rubbish during the bouts of chemo for a few days um, that I just, you know, a lot of people say that they feel vaguely hungover and they they tend to sit in the couch and eat lots of carbohydrates just to make themselves feel better, which people do when they're hungover. You know, you crave, you know, salty fried food and so on. So I avoided all that. And, um, you know, again, you read amazing stuff coming out about fasting and, and everything. So it was, it was kind of comforting to see that, yeah, I listened to my body during that period and I did not feel like eating you know, hardly anything. And, you know, probably and possibly did me good. Again, I can't say definitively, but I certainly would would bounce back quicker after the sort of 48, 72 hour fog. Right. And I think it's, I also like the fact that at the very beginning, you, when you introduced us, you said a ketogenic lifestyle. Mm. And that's something I always emphasize. I really look at diet as a stepping stone for a cancer patient. And I know, it can be incredibly overwhelming because there are so many things a cancer patient can actually do for themselves. And sometimes 
yeah, when you when you listen to podcasts or you look at their, uh, you know, various different um, sort of things that other cancer patients did, it is sort of, oh, goodness, I, I can't possibly do this. So I think the most tangible and, you know, also realistic for, for people is to start with diet mm. uh, because it's something they can still, you know, in, incorporate in their social life. And that's perfectly possible with a ketogenic diet. And then go on, you know, once they get the hang of this, that's what I say to my clients, once you get the hang of this, take the next step and, you know, really look at the lifestyle. It can be very simple things like your sleep habits Mm. (laughs) and light, for instance. I mean, there's loads of research going on at the moment in terms of mitochondria, light exposure, blue light, circadian rhythms. And, you know, it, it actually doesn't take a lot. It's just a change in habits and the mindset, but it won't you know, put your sort of life upside down at all. It's just trying to get the information and have choice because we all know ourselves pretty well uh, if we listen to ourselves and, um, you know, just taking taking it on board and making small changes. And I do feel sometimes for people who were incredibly stressed and they were, you know, typical sort of rat rat race life (laughs) and they have cancer and they sort of stop and, okay, I need to change something in my life, obviously. And, you know, diet can be a great first stepping stone that leads to a lot of other changes slowly but surely. And uh, I think that's, you know, that's the nice thing about it as well, that it will lead to, other things and it's not just about the diet Mm, very true i wonder um you know it's interesting first of all you are two perfect examples of patients who went above and beyond whatever a conventional doctor said you know oftentimes we just trust the doctor someone's scared they have cancer the guy says there's nothing more we can do here are your treatment schedule and that's it and you know there is something you can do you know you have to help your doctor help you and oftentimes a lot of doctors don't know about nutrition and so you know I impress upon patients, you have to do all that you can do as well. And that does mean research and and getting to the bottom of it. There are other answers and other healing modalities that go along with every kind of cancer treatment from acupuncture to ketogenic lifestyle. So, you know, it's really about, you know, you two stepped up and went above and beyond. And I'm so not surprised you both found your answer here, you know, um, because when you persevere, (laughs) you know, you, you get there. And so that's, that's a tough thing too for people that are sick is to feel like there's nothing they can do. I'm so glad you said that because it's something I'm, I'm, you know, I always say to people, you can't relax into the health system. You know, you, you, you don't know more about cancer than your oncologist. You're not an expert in everything, but as you said, you should go and research, but also look to what you're researching. And I know that Patricia in the, in the book, she'd mentioned this, this part, it's, it's making sure you're researching stuff in, in reliable, you know, um, papers and so on. Um, we avoided any kind of testimonials except the ones from ourselves. Um, ourselves in the book because sometimes testimonials can almost seem almost religious in a way you know you have to kind of believe and and, and we just wanted to avoid that because it, sometimes it's, it's frustrating it's like oh do you know what so-and-so did and they did wheatgrass every day and it you know they, they're fine now and that sometimes can can make people feel frustrated I think when they're patients so it's trying to find out what what's the sensible thing what's the most scientific thing what's the most up-to-date thing and what's going to work for me and I think that's, I think you're absolutely right. People do have to make an effort because it's, 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 
yeah, you can just relax and lie there and, and take all the medicine, but why not try and do what you can to keep yourself as, you know, in my case, it was chemo fit is, is how I described it. It's like, I'm not running a marathon, but I just want to get to the end of this and get to the end of treatment in as good shape as I possibly can. And you're the only one that can can sort of beat yourself with that stick of health. Um, and I think it's really important. Just indoctrinated into what the doctors are indoctrinated into, which is a belief system that, for example, like with the chemotherapy doctor, they've been taught that's all there is. Yeah, that's what there is. And that's all you can do. So then if you just agree or go with what they say uh, alone without doing any of the work yourself, then you are now also brainwashed into what they were brainwashed into because they're going off of 30 year ago medical, you know, protocols from med school. And some of them haven't gone above and beyond, except for I'm sure you've met doctors like I have where I really appreciate functional medicine and people who have integrative and anti-aging. You know, these are the doctors that have gone above and beyond and understand alternative integrative cancer therapies as well. And they usually also understand this ketogenic uh, angle. So I guess I would impress upon anyone, at least I'm not sure how, you know, the medical system is where you are, but it, here we yeah, probably not so great, but here, but here <laughs> also not, each other. Yeah, yeah, we're going great. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. Cause I know you had some like adverse reactions to your book, but, but I mean, here, you know, we have that you can seek out people. I think it's important to seek out a doctor who's still excited about science and learning and searching. And those are the people you want to be with. Not the guy that just stopped 30 years ago, got his degree and all he does is chemo. Right. It's, yeah. It's so true. I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's finding people who are, who are interested or at least supportive you know because that's the thing you don't taking control of your diet when you have a diagnosis is really important from a just a sense of control and being able to contribute to your well-being and I think to remove that or poo-poo it or dismiss it I I think can be very cruel um, on people so bar there's something you know that's really going to interfere with treatment and so on I think I think doctors need to be very encouraging of people who are making an effort to do things and as you said to go back and keep learning and seeing what's working for some patients what's what's good and I know from Patricia's um, experience you know she's she has clients from all over the world and and certainly uh, you know she, she said you know it's been interesting to see even her own consultant and to see the sort of you know it, there it is living proof of the success of adopting uh, a more strategic uh, diet that would actually enhance and improve treatment you know and I think that's that's really vital um, and as I said seeking out those those doctors is great. Mm. Or even just a doctor that is actually willing to monitor the diet, which is sometimes almost impossible to find because we have them in the book, you know, the list of blood tests that I really like people to do on a regular basis. Uh, And and I think every cancer patient should do them anyway, whether they're on a ketogenic diet or not. And even that sometimes, you know, meets incredible resistance. Why do you need those blood tests? And I was like, well... (laughs) you know, this person has cancer. So it's probably a good idea to <laughs> monitor liver markers and see, you know, why blood cells are they still there? <laughs> you know? I mean, sometimes I get very sarcastic or, you know, it's, it's or cynical actually, because it is just, why are you asking this question? Of course, it's important to do these tests. And that's the very least I actually expect from a medical professional that they agree 
to do those those tests at the at the regular basis. But even that is sometimes hard to do. I'm so glad you mentioned that because um, I talk about it in my book and I've talked about it before where I have been patronized. Well, or they had tried to patronize me. It didn't really work. But uh, I've been patronized by doctors. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of doctors out there probably like, man, I'm, I don't want to ever see her in my office again. But <laughs> I, I, I would say things like, hey, listen, I, I want you to test my B12. And they'd be like, that's ridiculous. You don't need to test that. And um, I mean, I literally in tears at one point was like, listen, I have a PPO. I have insurance. You're my doctor. I am asking you to take this blood test. Please take the test. And it sucks, but sometimes you have to be firm. And people are intimidated by doctors because they have an MD. And people out there need to know you have, you know, you have a right here too. And sometimes you're going to get some pushback, but get those, get those damn tests. You know what I mean? And if you have to have someone else evaluate them, that's fine, right? You know, if you have to, but, but, but get the test. And that's tough too, because there's a lot of push and pull with doctors and people, when a doctor patronizes them, and I mean, I could have just walked out and gone, Okay. And you know, I was feeling very patronized in that moment and the what his tone of voice. And I was just like almost about to cry at that moment. And, you know, it turns out I had a severe B12 deficiency. <laughs> so of course, you know, how stupid of me to test it, right? So, you know, I think that's a good point too. You know, sometimes you just gotta be strong and tough and and push back and and, and just fight to get what you need. Yeah, yeah I mean listen. I yeah, I could tell you a story of of me before my relapse, how I had to put my foot down. I mean, I knew something was wrong. I knew I, that tumor was growing again, but I wasn't taken seriously because the scans were clear initially. And I just had to go and just really almost pester <laughs> and be very and be very uncomfortable. Uh, but I think sometimes, uh, you know, it's it's in my case, it was more than justified and it was actually missed for months. So, you know, that's that's very frustrating. And I'm not the only one I come, come across those uh, cases all the time where relapses are missed or initial diagnosis are missed. And of course, there are people who maybe they are on the slightly hypochondriac side, but I think it's better safe than be sorry. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I think I remember saying to someone in a similar situation um, to Elda, where she, you know, she was asking for tests and so on. And, and she was, you know, she felt very patronizing and, and she left there just feeling very frustrated at the end of the session, kind of going, you know, I, I know there's something wrong. And I uh, say to people sometimes, you know, if it was your child in there and you were being told this information, no, we don't need to do that test, you would stomp your foot down and say, no, we're getting that test. And sometimes you need to almost treat yourself as though you're the child and you're also the parent trying to make sure that what's best mm. for you, the child, gets done. And Stand up for yeah, yourself. That is, yeah, it's really important with those things. And if you're not happy, you know, don't feel a nuisance. Um, you know, make sure you can try and get to the bottom of it. Uh, I think it's vital, vital for patients. Yeah, and following your gut, you know, I almost literally died in high school. I had an ingrown hair from like, you know, shaving my bikini area that became a huge, uh, <laughs> like a huge boil. And then I got a staph infection and they initially just gave me antibiotics. And I remember I really, at the time, pushed my mom. I'm like, we have to go to the hospital. Like my gut was... This is serious. Yeah. This yeah. is serious and this is not working. These antibiotics are getting worse 
so we got to go. And we walked in the doctor's office and like they literally in a minute put me right in the hospital for to, to surgery, forget that out. And immediately it was, you know, you've got to follow your gut on these things. If it doesn't feel right, it's not right. No, with day to day, you know, there's, there's plenty of research coming out just showing us how important, you know, that whole expression, having a gut instinct is. And, uh, you know, that these old, old expressions, they have a lot of purpose and sense behind them. So yeah, listening to your gut and your gut instinct, you know, make sure they're not overridden all the time um, by someone who has a lot of initials behind their name. Now, you guys both have, obviously, I mean, it's such an inspiring story. I think you're, you give so much hope to people out there. But let's talk about like the mental emotional aspects of this. I mean, you know, a lot of times when people get any kind of disease, it's and you're feeling awful in your own body, um, no matter what it is, it could be type two diabetes or cancer, you know, it's it's a tendency to kind of be frustrated at yourself, right? Angry at your body, thinking your body is an enemy, right? You know, and I know that that outlook probably isn't the healthiest one. But how did you both, you know, maintain what, what was the mental outlook? And what did you do? Did you do anything on a spiritual psychological level while you were going through this? You know, what was your outlook? Did you have to fight negative thought patterns and then turn that around because you're like, hey, don't go there? You know, can you talk a little bit about that aspect? Because I'm sure that's very tough for a lot of people. Yeah, I think, and I think when, you know, I have two children and uh, certainly having them see you sick, you know, it's very, at the time, 15-year-old um, and a two-and-a-half, three-year-old uh, who was a little bit oblivious to everything. But certainly the teen teenager was uh, very much, she was very aware of what was going on and terribly concerned that we were sort of hiding information and, you know, sort of need-to-know basis. So I think that aspect was hard, um, you know, certainly my little one seeing me without any hair totally bald you know she wasn't crazy about that um but for me it was really seizing control was you know diet was my religion it was my spiritual outlet as was exercise and, and staying focused and also remembering actually there are so many people that have this a whole lot worse than I do I'm lucky to be in a country where I am I have access to you know, excellent healthcare and support and friends. I'm not in a tent in the middle of Syria, not diagnosed, you know, so I sometimes would give myself a kick up the rear and just sort of say, listen, yeah, this is rubbish and it is really miserable, but it could be so much worse. And I tend to view things like that. And for me, it wasn't about going to support groups and everything. There's there's a huge amount offered too in terms of support groups and networks and other cancer patients. I didn't want to speak to anyone else who had cancer. I didn't want to be around negative energy. I didn't want to sit around and have a big moan with anyone else. I just, you know, wanted to do my own thing and keep life as normal as possible. And and for me, that was that was how I got through it because I think, it, you know, at the same time, I remember being up getting chemotherapy and just bawling, crying for, you know, the three hours I was up there, just tears pouring down my face. And the nurses <laughs> kept coming over to me going, are you sure you don't want to see somebody? Are you sure? And I was like, no, I just need to cry. I need to cry and I need to not have my husband or my children see me cry. I just need to have a good sob. And that worked, you know. And so I think it's it's just figuring out what you need. And and the last tip I'd say is do something nice after treatment. Um, I'd either go have a massage or go and, you know, see that old friend or go to that film or do things that you don't always have time to do in, in the rest of life. But it was just something to look forward to. And I think that you just sometimes need something 
cool to cling on to in those moments of darkness and for me that's that's how I did it with it without a doubt it was it was wouldn't say it was easy but it was uh, it there are definitely worse things mm, yeah for me it was um I'm I'm when Dominique and I were both quite similar in terms of uh personality and dealing and approaching things and uh actually one of the interesting things was that when I got my initial diagnosis I got it from my consultant who is only in inverted commas uh, an an ophthalmologist so we had to wait actually for an oncologist an ocular oncologist to be free and Actually, one of them happened to be on holidays. He was Irish, but he was working in the States at the time, happened to be in the country. So I had to wait till he was there. So that was two days of waiting to get the diagnosis confirmed. And uh, I guess I'm somebody who is by nature, I'm, I'm, I'm positive. I'm very blessed that way. And maybe there was a little bit of denial mixed in as well obviously <laughs> because we had to wait for a confirmation so it's ah oh, it's just you know a detached retina or it's you know nothing nothing major and what gives me incredible strength is nature so for me you know going for a walk and being connected with nature is something that is incredibly important but the day I got diagnosed it was a really long day so many tests oh my goodness I would never want to do that again and usually in Dublin it rains a lot <laughs> all the time actually yeah <laughs> but I know. <laughs> yeah, exactly I know. <laughs> but the day I had my tests it was just a, the most beautiful day and I had my pupils dilated <laughs> and it was so yeah yeah it was so <laughs> uncomfortable so it wasn't the best day of my life and that very night I uh, was due to have some friends coming over for dinner and uh, I sort of called them after my test and I said, look, I just got diagnosed. They were completely blown away and no, we're not coming tonight. We're not coming. And I said, you are coming. And we just had the best night. I just wanted to I just wanted to be with my friends and I wanted to be a bit wild and we you know, not in terms of partying or drinking, but just we actually ended up having a, a food fight. <laughs> and, you know, that's how yeah. <laughs> it was actually strawberries and cream. Yeah. <laughs> and for me, it was sort of, OK, either I sit down and just I'm miserable mm. or I have my friends over and I just get on with it. It won't change. It won't change much if I'm miserable. And I did definitely get my emotions out. and. I think I stored up a lot of anger just with what happened as well with the missed relapse and, and all of this. I had quite a lot of anger. I had two babies in between all of this, um, which in hindsight, I'm sort of, you know, how did they actually, I asked my oncologist, yeah, is it okay for me to get pregnant? Yeah, no problem at all. And I don't think it was no problem, to be honest, but I didn't know any better. Um, but that was obviously very, very hard as well with uh, a young baby to have the second round of uh, treatment. But she gave me a lot of strength and living mm. in the moment, I think, as well. And something. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. And I guess for me, also, my work is to some extent, it's therapy. I love writing mm. and, you know, my blog or the videos I do. And you, you see my personality. I'm, I'm not somebody who 
I don't do miserable very well. (laughs) So I am always, you know, I'm always cheerful. And I was always, even at the hospital ward, it it was pretty, you know, dire. I shared shared the ward with about 16 people and mostly diabetic. And we just tried to have a bit of a laugh. And I guess, you know, that's just the way you get through it. And then when you're on your own, you let it all out. And I'm definitely very spiritual as well. Um, I I do believe in in the power of the universe and you know getting your intentions out and the way you look out generally that that comes back to you as well. So I'm a believer in karma, <laughs> and I think all these things have definitely helped. But it's still I'm still on a a road of developing and you know evolving and trying to find out what's best what's best. And I guess that's just how life rolls. Then mm. yeah. I mean, work really only starts after treatment, (laughs) I think, um, for a cancer patient, because it's, uh, I think it's a very, it's such a spiritual message. And I'm glad you actually asked this question. I really do believe that a lot of cancer patients, um, they look at things quite differently once, you know, they've gone through treatment and uh, almost take it as an opportunity. I took it as an opportunity to change my career and to change a lot of my views as well to some extent you know i yeah i have a, a friend in hawaii right now who's just at uh, just ended um treatment for throat cancer stage four and uh they have uh you know big positive spiritual background and their level of positivity and hope and looking forward is just almost amazing. You know, there's nothing negative that has come. I mean, of course he he'll say, look, I was barreled over throwing up. This was horrible, but, but, but overall it is um, also the level of, you know, he was saying um, I went for a hike and it was like, I'd never been on that hike before, even though I've done it a thousand times, you know, the way you look at the world. And so if you can extrapolate any level of gratitude or gratitude is so important, right. Or like one of you said, almost a backhand, and gratitude where you can say, well, gosh, there's someone in a situation worse than me now. And, you know, that sounds like, ah, but it's true because look, you know, you may be having cancer, but someone just got their legs blown off. Okay. So then it gives you perspective to find some part of even your dire situation that, that you can be grateful about. And even th- those moments really do help propel healing too. Oh, without a doubt. And I mean, you know, we can, we can go on trying to find silver linings, but, but I do. I mean, I think, I, I think it was really important that we wrote this book and that, that, um, and you know, this is my fifth cookbook. I've, you know, I've been writing, writing for years and years and years, but to actually have had the opportunity to meet Patricia and just, you know, to have some sort of insight, to be able to have a window into her, her brain and her knowledge and her expertise. I just think it's so important. It is so, so important. And for that, I am extremely grateful that we've done it. And it's been a really good experience writing the book because, yeah, there have, there have been some, some noises, shall we say, in terms of very, um, conservative, uh, sort of approaches to, to treatment and people that are big fans of, of the food pyramid, for instance, um, who've come out, you know, quite vociferous, uh, in, in terms of saying ketogenic diets very dangerous and, and so on and so forth. And there's been a little scaremongering, I suppose. Uh, and it has been frustrating, um, you know, because, I think we've been so cautious in everything that we've said and everything has been so carefully researched and, and just pointing to the things that are uh, emerging evidence, you know, that is good, strong evidence and, and also lots of caveats as to who ketogenic diet may not be suitable for. And I think that's that's terribly important. It's not suitable for everyone. Low carb probably is. 
Yeah, you have a list of that in your book of a whole list of, you know, this might not be appropriate if you have X, Y, Z. Um, and let's talk, let's wrap it up and finish off with the book. First of all, it's, it's such a beautiful, lovely book. The photos, the recipes are amazing. And these avocado aiolis, you've got some great, you know, grain free keto like breads and crackers and lots of delicious recipes, but it's also a mini tutorial on keto. You also offer great other resources of other authors who go into this subject even more sciencey and in-depth than your book offers. But um, I really think this is just a great start for anybody and also just really a wonderful, um, inspiring message from from both of you. You know, it's always it's always more inspiring when, you know, hearing it from someone who survived it than just hearing it from a doctor who never even went through it. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. No, it with, makes a difference. without a doubt. And I think that, that certainly people that have read it and the feedback that we've, we've got from readers is they, they feel like it's someone has like literally taken their hand and walked them through, you know, a lot of the burning questions that pop up when it comes to cancer. And, um, I think, as I said before, this is honestly the book that I wish that I'd had access to when I was first diagnosed. I spent a lot of time researching a lot of stuff I wish I hadn't read. <laughs> and just to save time and go straight to the source and to be able to 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 think and understand and, and look at the, the really relevant science and say, right, this probably makes sense. It makes it's so such common sense. Uh, it's more than likely going to do me some good, uh, if not a whole lot of good. And this is a great start. And I think that's it's a huge incentive for us to 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 write the book was to actually be able to to give back to people um, who are in this situation. And and for me as a cook and a chef and a writer, uh, you know, I I definitely felt an obligation, I suppose, to to do this. And and marrying up with Patricia to write the book, it's just it's been brilliant. We keep joking that she has the brains and I have the brawn. Um, <laughs> come on, and, come on. <laughs> we're very complimentary. Yeah, we definitely. are. It's it's been yeah. it's been great and it's been a lovely experience. It yeah. really has. Well, where, tell us where we can find you and where we can find the book. It's called The Ketogenic Kitchen. But tell us, give us some. Um, can we find it on Amazon? Do we go directly to your website? So yeah, it's. On on amazon.com now i think as it well is, yeah. it's just gone up there and uh amazon.co.uk and in a lot of uh, bookshops in in ireland and i'm not actually quite sure what the plan is in in the states US, which yeah. we, we have to ask the uh publishers which bookshops it's going to go into and for people who just want general information as well we have a website the ketogeniccitchen.com we have some videos and how to make some of the recipes from the uh, book as well and then there's uh, patriciadaily.com. I've got really, you know, loads of resources and also free online classes. I've got some uh, paid beginners courses and master classes for practitioners and uh, ebooks there as well. So there's there's lots of information available uh, on keto. Great. Thank you so much for joining us again, the ketogenic kitchen. And we can go to the ketogeniccitchen.com or Amazon to uh, buy the book. Thank you so much for joining us and inspiring people all over the world. You know, you're saving people all of the time and money and hassle of going down a road that's maybe not the right one. And as you've probably found out, you came around to the right thing, but it probably took some time. So I love that, you know, this whole journey is saving people time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's yeah. been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for having us on. It's a, it's, it's been a real honor. And yeah, it's lovely talking yeah. to you. Yeah, thanks. Have a great day. Yeah, you, you too. Hi, folks. Mark Sisson here. And I'd like to tell you about my biggest undertaking yet, the Primal Health Coach Program. 
My mission is to create a global network of primal health coaches to help transform the health and consciousness of our communities into ones of optimal wellness and happiness. Becoming a primal health coach empowers you to take your primal passions to the next level and embark on a career you love, inspiring others to live lives of vitality and lasting wellness. If you dream of a career in health coaching but have been held back by worries such as the investment of time and money, then I encourage you to hesitate no longer. Health coaching is the fastest growing specialty in all of coaching. And we've created an online education program that allows you to learn from the comfort of your own home and at your own pace. We also have payment plans available, so you can start immediately for just a dollar down. The world needs primal health coaches to provide a blend of ancestral wellness solutions to the modern health crisis. The world needs you. Are you ready to become one of the world's most trusted, experienced, and knowledgeable health coaches? To learn more about this online certification program and to take the first step toward a career you love, visit PrimalHealthCoach.com and subscribe.